Good morning, Foothill Church. Let's grab our Bibles and go to Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 11 uh, through 24. Um, it was a, a terrible storm that awakened the, the crew of the Greyhound on the late into the evening of March 21st, 1791. They had left the west coast of Africa. They were, they were headed back to the New World, and their cargo holds were laden with all these precious African goods like gold and ivory. Back in those days, beeswax was a big deal and some lumber. And then the storm hit, and, and, uh, and the crew began to panic. In fact, the, 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 the icy waters of the Atlantic began to pour in uh, through an opening in John Newton's uh, cabin there. It woke him. He, he jumped out of his hammock half-naked, ran to the, the pumps, and began to pump furiously, trying to keep up with the volume of water that was coming into the ship. But there was no, I mean, it wasn't going to happen. And he, as he, the more he pumped, the more water that came in. And the problem was that Newton, like most of uh, the sailors in his day, and certainly those on his ship, uh, didn't know how to swim. He, uh, he said later on, as he was recalling that night, he wrote that he was unfit to live and he was unfit to die. See, John Newton's life had sort of sort of swirled into this cesspool of, of wickedness and wretchedness. He, uh, you know, sailors aren't known for their genteel language. They're, they're not known to sort of watch their mouths, and yet John Newton spoke in such a way that, that even the, the sailors found him vulgar. They even blushed at him. He was called the great blasphemer. His, his sexual promiscuity was very well known to the point that he even took advantage of some of the African female slaves that he transported to the New World just to satisfy his own urges. He didn't especially like to drink, and yet he loved to get drunk, and he liked to get drunk for no other reason than to drag other men into his folly. He, he wasn't content on being wicked, he, he wanted other people to be wicked with him. He had gambled himself into serious debt. So, so listen, if on, April, on March 21st, 1791, if John Newton had died, nobody would have thought anything about it. In fact, they probably would have thought to themselves, he got exactly what he deserved, except that he didn't. He got mercy. In fact, the story he tells in the height of the storm, when it felt like all hope was lost, he cried out, Lord, have mercy upon us. And he said, as soon as the words, Lord, came out of his mouth, he said, it was like an arrow struck me. And he said, I look back on that night as the great day of turning, when God reached down into my life to deliver me from the shipwreck of my wretchedness. There's no way John Newton could have predicted what would become of his life. I mean, he, he, there's no way he could have understood that within a few years he would completely leave behind his prodigal lifestyle. He would be married faithfully to one woman for over 40 years. He would go on to leave a, a lucrative business and, and end up becoming a pastor of two parishes in Great Britain. He couldn't have known that God was actually going to use him to be one of the staunchest critics of the slave trade and a key figure in the whole abolitionist movement that ultimately overthrew during his lifetime slave, slavery in England. And I'm sure he couldn't have fathomed 
that he would become a prolific hymn writer, writing perhaps the most well-known, beloved hymn in all of Christendom. Of course, I'm talking about Amazing Grace. And you know it. It's an autobiographical hymn. He, he wrote Amazing Grace. For a New Year's service, he, he wrote this, this hymn, and he sat down and penned this, this autobiography, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Because when the amazing gospel of grace slammed into the heart of John Newton, it changed everything. He would look back on his life and say, there's no other explanation I can give you. There's nothing. I can't look at anything in myself and say, what God did is save me because John Newton was a good guy. That God saw some kernel of virtue, latched onto that, and this is the reason he saved me. He said, no, it's all of grace. That's why in the, in the song he talks about grace saving him and grace finding him and grace teaching him. He looks back on his life and says, it's grace, grace, grace upon grace, all amazing, amazing grace. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul is going to do the same thing. He's going to bring us into his story and tell us a story of amazing grace. And he's going to do it for, uh, for, for, for really important reasons within the book of Galatians. So if you remember, the book of Galatians is being written, and Paul, Paul is upset at the Galatians because they're about to abandon this faith that he had deposited with them, and they're believing these false teachers. And so what Paul's going to do, and they're believing them because they're saying that Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. So Paul's going to say, let me explain to you how the gospel of grace came to me. And then he's going to say, and what we're going to learn is, is what the gospel of grace did to me. So, so how it came to him and what it did to him. So let's, let's look at these together, starting in chapter 1 uh, in verse 11. Here's what Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's stop there just for a second, and here's what Paul is doing. He's saying, look, re re remember, what, I, what you think about me is that I don't have authority, that somehow I made up this gospel, or somehow this gospel came to me from some other means. I'm here to tell you, and Paul's going to sort of summarize his whole story in just this, these first two verses. I got it from a revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, here's what he's going to do then going through this, he's going to say, now, now I want to tell you my story. And essentially Paul does this. He offers up his story as circumstantial evidence of why it is that you should believe that he's not lying to you, that Jesus Christ, the only way you can explain Paul knowing and teaching the gospel the way he does is because it came directly from God to him. And so that's kind of what happens in verses 13 and following. So we're going to cycle through verses 13 to 24, and then we'll cycle back around and kind of see how, how this applies. Okay, so the first thing, Paul's going to offer up his evidence in verses 13 and 14 and say, look, if I made this up myself, that doesn't make sense because look at who I was prior to my conversion. So look at, look at verse 13, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy it, and was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So Paul goes, look, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I was in no frame of mind to, to, to somehow, you know, what I did is I, I got up for a period of reflection and just realized, you know what, I'm wrong. 
I'm wrong. Paul said, look at who I was. I was murderous. I actually, I actually killed people. I actually voted for their execution. I hated Christ. I hated Christians. I was absolutely set in my mind about what this was, that it was wrong. I was right, and nothing was going to convince me. In fact, listen to what John Stott says, commenting about this. He says, a man in that mental condition, he's talking about him saying I'm violent and all that. He says, man in that mental and emotional state is in no mood to change his mind or even to have it changed for him by men. He doesn't, he doesn't listen to reason. He doesn't want to, you know, this isn't a guy, it's like saying, you know, the leader of ISIS, if he would just read a couple of books by reasonable Christians, he would change his mind. He's not ever going to do that because he's dead set against it. Right off the bat, I don't want to know what you think the truth is. So he says, look at, look at my life. Look at, look at what was going on. I mean, Paul, we find out in Acts chapter 7, he watched someone be murdered. There's, there's no sense, a Christian martyr named Stephen, there's no sense that you get in that passage that that affected Paul. Like, wow. That was profound. Did you see how bravely that guy died? Maybe what he's, he believed and preached is true. Nothing. He held their coats and then went on his rampaging ways. See, so Paul says, look at me. Look at, look at who I was. This is the first piece of evidence I'm going to offer up, as, if you will, that says there's no way that this just came from my own thoughts or reading or study or reflection or anything like that. But the second thing he's going to say is, look, I didn't get this from any other apostle. Skip down to verse 16. And at the end of verse 16, he says, he says, when I was saved, right, he, he's talking about his salvation, he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, no gospel witness out there, and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So here's what Paul's doing. He said, let me, let me, let me tell you another part of why you should believe that what I'm telling you is true. I, I couldn't possibly have learned this from the other apostles. In fact, he's going to say basically this. Let me give you three reasons why. Because very shortly after I became a Christian, after God saved me and rescued me and knocked me off my horse and Jesus Christ appeared to me in this massive revelation, he says, very quickly at that, I left for three years. I was gone. This is a time when Jesus is teaching him. This is a time when he's learning. His, his, his theology is being reoriented. We'll talk about that in a moment. All this sort of stuff happening to Paul. There's, there's, there's no way. I didn't even have a chance to be around the apostles yet. And when I did come back to Jerusalem three years later, I was already preaching the gospel that you are accusing me of having learned from somebody else. And when I came, I was only in Jerusalem for 15 days. All right, do you see what he's doing? I'm only there, I'm, I'm just a very brief time, and there's no way that the full scope of the gospel soaked into my life the way it has in 15 days. And to boot, he says, on top of all this, the only people I interacted with were Peter and James. For 15 days, I kind of stopped in, and if you read Acts, he stops in, he's preaching while he's there, this gospel they claim that he learned. He's saying, look, this couldn't have been. But the final piece of evidence he offers up in verses 20 to 24, he says, look, in the end, the gospel I was preaching squared, it checked out with the gospel that had been, been being preached by, by the other apostles. So if you, go, if you go to verse 20, 
He says, and what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. So what he's doing here, it's like, I, I, I want you to, you, you have to believe Paul is just a liar to believe what the false teachers are teaching them. He says, then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia. He was from Damascus. This is where Tarsus is, or Saul of Tarsus, that's Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea. They didn't know me down there. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Paul says, look, I'm preaching not under the direction of the other apostles, but word is getting back that he's preaching the gospel, and he says, they're glorifying God because of me. So everything's checking out. So in the end, he's saying, Galatians, trust me, this came as a revelation from God. Believe me, put your faith in this gospel. You're not putting your faith in Paul. You're simply believing that I'm telling you the truth and I'm not lying. So there's a lot of people that still talk this way. Paul's a liar. Paul didn't know what he's talking about. We shouldn't really trust Paul. Paul says some things that are different than Jesus or whatever, and somehow we're supposed to see that Jesus' words are more important than Paul's. They're not. Was Jesus more important than Paul? Of course. Are the words in Scripture that we have memorialized for us, are one more important? No. They're all the same. And we must not do that with Scripture. We must not play that way as though inside of Scripture, the only thing I've got to obey is the words of Jesus. I can somewhere ignore the words of Paul. Paul's saying, I got this from Jesus. This is of equal weight. Believe it. Trust it. Put your faith in it. Now, that's how the gospel of grace came to Paul. But the second thing I want you to see, and I think, I think this is one of these wonderful things that in Paul telling us his story of amazing grace, we get to see what the gospel of grace did to Paul. See, the gospel doesn't just teach you something new. It creates you into someone new, right? It, 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 it sort of comes into the human heart. It, it fills us. Paul says the gospel of grace, he says, when I received it, it, it he, he actually talks about it coming not just to me, but in me. And it begins to transform my life radically. It radically transforms. It transforms Paul. It transforms John Newton. It transforms you and me. See, this is what God does. He transforms, through His grace, the last people in the world that you would expect to receive it. Now, isn't it interesting that we even think like this? Like, think about somebody in your life that you would think, there's no way. There's no hope. Now, why do you think that way if you think that way? Probably because of this, because somewhere deep inside of you, you think that what you ought to see, someone who is eligible to receive the grace of God somehow has turned their face in some way toward God or there is some nugget of virtue that God looked down and can sort of lock onto and say, okay, I've got something to work with. you've got Paul, and you've got John Newton, you've got you and me, who as we sing sometimes are running our hell-bound race. We're indifferent to the cross. We don't, we don't care what's going to happen. We're, we're, we're doing what we want to do, and God says, I'm going to rescue you. This is grace. This is the amazing grace of God. So let's, here's what I want to do. I want to cycle back through verses 11 through 24, and I want you to see now the amazing grace of God in Paul's life, and sort of look at it through that lens. What did the gospel of grace 
do to Paul? Okay, so let's start off again. And who was he? Okay, so he goes back, go back to verses 13 and 14 again. He says, I was murderous, right? Violent. I was advancing in Judaism beyond those of my, many of my, uh, uh, among my people, many of my own age. And so, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of the Father. So Paul goes, look, I was, by the way, that word violent means like savagery. I mean, this is, this is just, you know, I, I beat people, murder people. I would do anything. And, and yet, that savagery is mixed with religion. I mean, Paul was an incredibly religious person. And then you don't need to look very far to understand how this works, right? I mean, this is, this is happening today in the Middle East right before our eyes. There are people who are murderous and incredibly religious. Like, and they, they, they actually stick up for the traditions and the faith of their fathers. It's happening all over. Paul says, this was me. I, I was this incredibly religious person. I was this very violent person. And you know, what, you know what he does? I love that he says this. I was doing so much better than people my own age of my own people. Like, this is how we look at our lives, right? The reason I know I'm right with God, many people think, is because, not because I'm equal with God or I'm better than Jesus, I'm just better than you. I mean, I, 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 I'm advancing, I can look at, I pray more than you, I read my Bible more than you, I, I do religious stuff more than you, I help the poor more than you, I'm, I'm just a better citizen than you, better neighbor than you. This is how I know I'm righteous. And Paul goes, look, I tried all that, and none of that righteousness, none of that morality, none of that law-keeping, I was the poster child, and it didn't make me righteous before God. And Paul says, in some sense, I want my life to be this illustration, I want it I want it to illustrate for you the futility of moral righteousness. I want you to look and I want you to hear me say, I, I've been there, I've done that, I've tried it, I crossed all the T's, I dotted all the I's, I got straight A's, I was doing everything right, and it got me nothing. See, if John, John Newton, I love, I love his story because... Maybe one of the lessons John Newton teaches us is that God, the grace of God, rescues the irreligious that don't want to be rescued. And Paul's story is that the grace of God rescues the religious who think they don't need to be rescued. Right? Like this is this is the story. This is my story. This is the the, the gospel. Is, is neither religion nor irreligion. Irreligion, I mean, re religion's going to tell you, right, I, I obey, and then somehow because of my obedience, God will make me righteous. The gospel says, no, God makes you righteous. God rescues you from your own self-righteousness, and now you obey. That's the gospel. And this is Paul. Paul's saying, this is who I was. But now, Look at what God did. Look at verse 15 and 16 again. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to or in me. You see what he just said? But, <laughs> one of the best words in the Bible, right? Salvation starts with, but God. But when he, talking about God, right, it starts with this fact that I'm running one way. If God does not move contrary to my bent, to your bent, none of us would ever be saved. 
Paul says, when, when he, he invaded my life, right? None of, none of this would have happened without that but, without but God intervening, reaching into my life and doing what only he can do. And did you notice this? Notice, look, look back, just kind of glance at it for a second. Look at verses 13 and 14 real quickly and notice this. You've heard of my you know, life and I persecuted and violently destroyed. And I was advancing beyond many of my own age, my people. I was zealous for traditions. And then you get to 15 and 16, and then it's God, He, Him. It's all of God. See, this is, this is life before Jesus and after Jesus. This is, this is what happens to us. We're living for ourselves. Everything's about me. Everything's building my own resume. I'm doing it all. I'm advancing. I'm, I'm, the, the reason I know I'm saved is I'm a good guy, but God. And God comes along, and He does it all. This is, this is what God does. But notice this. He says in, he says in verse 15, he says, when, when he who had set me apart before I was born. See, see what does this mean? Some people balk at this. They don't like this idea that God actually chooses people before they're born. Well, you could not like that, but you just can't read your Bible and say, I don't like it, because it's everywhere in Scripture. Paul's going to actually sort of even increase that when he gets to and writes the, the, the letter to the Ephesians. He's going to say that God predestined you to adoption before the foundation of the world. Now, you can balk it and say, I don't like that. I don't like there's this thing called election or predestination, but that ought to be this warm blanket to your soul, because here's why. Do you know what this means? It means that God loved you, like Paul will write in, in Romans chapter 9, before you did anything good or bad, which means that grace doesn't depend on anything in your past because God loved you and decided to set you apart and decided to call you to himself before you had a past. That's awesome. And there's God in the throne room going, this is so great. I mean, here, this, 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 this child that's being born, right? I'm going to watch this John Newton, and I'm going I'm to orchestrate his life, and everything that's happening in his life is going to bring him to this moment where finally I'm going to open his eyes, and he's going to see, and he will be drawn to the beauty of Christ, and he will say yes, because I will reach down and I'll save him. This is the story of salvation. And I'm sure Paul looked back and said, there's so many things. He says, even in Philippians, he says, man, I count those things as loss. And yet God says, Paul, you know what I was doing? I was taking your successes. I was taking your failures. I was taking every part of your life and weaving it together for this moment when I would bring you to myself, when I would show you my son. I did that for John Newton. I did that for Chris Lewis. I did that for everybody who ever knew me. See, this is the story of your life if you're a Christian, but it's the story of the world. You know what this means, right? There, there's, like, Paul goes, I, I was actively opposing Christ. I had every intent to stamp out the name of Jesus and that it, nobody would ever hear this again. There would be no Christians left in the world. These were my intentions. You know what God did? God comes along and says, Paul, I'm going to turn your intentions. I'm actually going to move your heart in such a way that I'm going to overturn your will in favor of my will. This is what God does. So look, at the end of it all, 
we're going to look back with Jesus on all of human history and all these people. There will always be people trying to stamp out the name of Christ. There will always be people who say, I can't believe you believe what, what you do. And they're going to hate Jesus and they're going to hate you because you're a Christian. And it's going to feel like, wow, how can this be happening to me? And God's saying, don't worry about it. You know what I'm going to do in the end? Everybody's going to look back and then they go, all this opposition to me, actually, the only thing it did was further my purposes. That's amazing. This is God. I'm, I'm going to further my kingdom in this world. See, because in the end, this is what happens. But then, but then look what he says. Why did God choose Paul? Or look at how he says it. Why, why did he reveal his son to him? See, because this is what it is, right? Did, G, did, did Paul know about the Messiah? Did Paul know? Yeah, of course. Did Paul know that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah? Of course he did. Did Paul know there was this guy named Jesus Christ and the disciples? and all? Of course he did. Why does he say that he revealed his son to me? Because this is what happens. God has to open our eyes. There came a moment when you and I, when Paul and John Newton, when everybody who becomes a Christian finally says, Aha, I see that Jesus is who he says he is. Why? Because you got smarter? Because suddenly you were intellectual enough, suddenly you'd done enough good? No, because God revealed. Why did God reveal his son to Jesus, or to, 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 to Paul? Why, why would he reveal Jesus to Paul? Because Paul did something to please God? No. Paul says, the reason God revealed his son to me was because, look at it, it pleased him. It just pleased God to do this. See, why, why did God reveal the Son to you, to me? Because it pleased Him. See, if it didn't please God, if God didn't want to reveal Him, we'd still be in darkness. We'd still, we'd still believe Jesus was just this good man. We might say with our lips, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but it would make absolutely no difference in our lives. But He doesn't. He says, you know what? I, I'm going to save you. Why? Simply because I love you. So we talked about this last week. What's the why behind God saving you and me and Paul and John Newton and everybody else who's ever saved? What would God say to us? Not, Chris, you're awesome. Not because I saw this glimmer of hope. Not because I had something to work with. He looks and it says, because I love you, Chris. That's it. It pleases me to reveal. I actually get pleasure. See, every other religion in the world says this. God will save you. Whoever that God is will save you if you prove useful to him. That says, I didn't look at your usefulness. I didn't look and say, you know what, this is, this is, this is somebody who's going to really, you know, I, I, only because of this reason am I going to save them. No, he just says, I did it. I, I just love you. The only place we can even come close to that is when we, when we have children, right? Why do you love them? Why do you love them when they're a sandbag with a head and all they do is poop and eat and sleep? Why do you love them? Because you love them. You just love them. And Paul says it pleased God just to love us like this. But now look at this last thing. I want you to see how this all changed Paul. So, so, so start reading in verse 17 with me again. He says, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to the apostles. I went out into Arabia. And we find in verse 18, he says, I was up there basically for three years. 
right? This is what was going on in my life. So Paul gets saved, and he goes into Arabia. And we can only surmise that what happened in Arabia is this is where God began, if you will, to completely turn Paul's theology on its head, completely reorient, completely repaint the picture that Paul had of his world, to give him an entirely different worldview. See, the way that this works, the way that discipleship works, and this worked for Paul, it works for us. Here's the great apostle Paul saying the way it worked for me was not, you know, I had this port in my head and God stuck the USB flash drive in and boom, I got the gospel. He says he took three years. It took three years. Jesus took three years walking the earth with his disciples, patiently teaching them, walking with them, helping them to understand all the nuances, getting them into out-of-the-way places and into the city, all these different environments where they could learn and their hearts could be shaped by the gospel that he was going to finally unveil to them on the cross and in his resurrection. And Paul says, this is what God did for me. He taught me. In fact, he's going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he's going to say, what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you. Where did Paul learn about what happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed? He took bread and he broke it. He didn't learn it from Peter, didn't learn it from James, didn't learn it from anybody who was in that upper room. Jesus sat him down and said, let me tell you the story of that night. I, I received it. But, but, but here, here, here I think is one of the lessons for us. Paul, Paul goes and submits to a time of reflection and solitude, and I'm not doing mighty things for God yet, for three years. So we live in a culture that doesn't value reflection. In fact, we don't value downtime at all. This is why we have our phones, right? Our phones have become this constant, there is no such thing as ever having an empty moment. An awkward pause in a conversation, phones get whipped out. Driving in the car, remember, remember the days 25 years ago, you'd go for a road trip, maybe some of you don't remember this, but I do, you go for a road trip, there was nothing to do but look out the window and just kind of Right? Just stare and let your mind wander and think. But what about that? What about space in your life where you can think and God can speak and you can listen and you can be corrected and you can, you can have your theology molded and you can spend time studying? This is what Paul was doing. Paul's saying, man, I was frantically at work stamping this thing out. God saves me and says, hey, Paul, shh, come aside with me for a while. And we're going to chat for about three years. I'm going to teach you all kinds of things. But, but, then, but then look at this. Look at, look, at, look at what happens with Paul's life. And we read it before. But he says, then I, I went to the regions of Syria, Cilicia, still unknown there. They were only hearing it said, he used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried. And they glorified God because of me. Paul's life caused other people to glorify God, not glorify Paul. See, Paul's posts on Facebook weren't getting a lot of things like, well, you're smart. Well, that's pretty, go brother, like, 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 like. As Paul posted on Facebook, people were saying, God is glorious. You, you, you just showed me a picture of Jesus that I've never seen before. 
you, you just put my, you, you cause my hope to be placed somewhere rather than in the things of earth. Like you, you, you lifted my head to something beyond me. I, I'm glorifying God because of you. You're, you're making me. I mean, people would look at Paul and they would say, there's no explanation for this, only God. And we glorify God because of it. Say, Christian, this is the calling on your life. That my life and your life would be lived in such a way that because of us, like it says here, they would glorify God because of us. I mean, Paul says, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, this saying is trustworthy. It's deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost, but I received mercy that in me the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And then he just breaks out in this, this worship to the king, immortal, invisible. Like, it's what God, God did this in me so others would glorify him, so others would turn to him. Paul's going to say, you know, you know what ought to happen? You know what happened to every Christian? See, there's this popular notion that you can become a Christian and there's no change. That's... That's a wonderful thought. It's just not true. Because listen, there's all kinds of reasons I could point to. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, it's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And this is all of God. That what God is doing is transforming you from one degree of glory to another into the image of his beloved son. Right? This is what God's doing. God, God's saying, none of you are Jesus. But, but what I'm doing is I'm going to be doing, I'm going to, I'm going to recreate you. I'm going to reform you. So he doesn't say transform yourself and then you can be saved. But he says if you are saved, you will be transformed. And people ought to glorify God because of us. That's the idea. See, the gospel changes us. The gospel comes to us through the apostolic faithful witness of men like Paul, James, and Peter that we have here in Scripture. But then it comes to us, and it goes to work in us, and it begins to transform us from the inside, re giving us new hopes and new motivations, giving us new affections, new loves, shaping us, molding us, sanding away the rough edges. So in the end, we're presented to our Lord and Savior, he says, we're, he's made us just like you. That's what he's doing. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this gospel of grace that came to Paul. And thank you that now there has been faithful proclamation of that through the, through the generations after generation after generation. So that now many of us in this room right now are, are recipients of that gospel of grace. Because it has been protected and held and defended. I pray that would, that would happen at Foothill Church. I, I pray we would continue to stand up and to defend the truth of the gospel. God, I, I pray more than that. I pray this gospel of grace would come into us. You would reveal your son to us through this gospel, and it would be the power of God to salvation and would begin to transform us from the inside out. Lord, so many of us long for transformation, and here it is showing us that the way to transformation is not some sort of bootstrap lifestyle where I've got to try harder. It's, 
It's yielding to the gracious work of God in our lives, which is what Paul did, which is what John Newton did, which is what anybody who's ever grown in grace has done. And I pray that for us. And God, I pray for people in this room that don't know the grace of God, that, that maybe they're hearing this and it's like it's hitting, it's hitting fresh ears and eyes and they're understanding for the first time in their life. And I pray, Lord, that, the, that this would be the day that you would be pleased to reveal your son to them and that revelation would open their eyes and, Lord, they would find themselves irresistibly flying to Jesus, running and saying, Father, save me through Jesus Christ. Do that, I pray, Lord. We love you, we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.